currently in the in this current phase of the war where Russia is going after more limited aims, uh, it's still fighting on a 900 kilometer frontage and it has somewhere between 70, 73, maybe 90 battalion tactical groups. If you were to put them all online, uh, like in a defense, they could cover 90 kilometers um, uh, out of a 900-kilometer uh, frontage. So a, a defensive um, kind of positional war component to this is going to be insanely difficult for them. Um, in this, you know, the waning days of this offense where they're trying to achieve some breakthroughs, the Russians uh, uh, have impossible odds. The Ukrainians have run a very sophisticated, savvy um, uh, defense in depth, a mobile def- defense in depth, not uh, uh, not allowing themselves to be encircled. Uh, and uh, while Russia kind of continues to break its combat power on, um, so I think you know it's possible things could somehow still change. Uh, Russia could pull a rabbit out of the hat. And, uh, you know, find the kind of the commander that allows them to to achieve some breakthroughs. But they're not going to be able to get very far just because they've suffered some such enormous losses. And Ukraine is getting replenished with uh, all sorts of goodies. Um, So we're going to find ourselves in a position where Russia is going to have to go on a defense. It's going to be a porous defense. Russia is going to get punished. And it's really going to have to kind of uh, go down to some much, much smaller gains. And I think those gains are maybe possibly kind of um, the the boundaries of uh, the LNR and DNR on on the 24th of February, and some holds um, to to secure a land bridge in uh, um, in the south. That might be the best that Russia is able to do, um, and then try to sue for peace. Well, thank you very much. Uh, any follow up there, sorry, John? No, no. Thanks, brother. Have a good night. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, sir, thank you so much for uh, for supporting us and being here. Uh, we realize your time is uh, very uh, valuable. And uh, again, uh, I'd like everyone, if you could go and, and uh, check out uh, Colonel Vindman's uh, Twitter handle there. I have read his book. Uh, amazing. Uh, and tr- truly, I don't want to wax uh, hyperbolic, but uh, an American patriot, um, thank you uh, for everything that you do. And um, and we hope to see you, Amriyad, again whenever you can. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Alexander. And uh, we have many more questions. So if we got a chance to get you back, we would be more than glad to have you back to you. Right. Yes. Thank you so much for all of that. I, uh, um, you know, this is, it's not often we get, uh, you know, such a great panel and, uh, and I want to thank the entire panel actually uh, for their, their questions and their insight and to the thousands of messages we got, uh, I think a lot of them were similar at the end, and I think we, we tried to hit off as many as we can. Uh, Colonel Vindman will be back, uh, he assures, and, uh, uh, and he will, we're going to send him over the Maria, Maria Aid um, uh, website and, uh, and Twitter handle, and he'll retweet it. Um, you know, I, I do want to say this. I, I, don't make, I don't want people to be confused or make no mistake. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a people on the other side of the planet who took up the mantle of freedom. They took up the cause of freedom, for the freedom of speech, of expression, the right to choose in what you believe, whether it's political or otherwise, the right to worship who you want to, what symbol of God you like, or for who you love. And the Ukrainians have raised that torch high. And Lady Liberty has some stiff competition. Uh, They've been fighting this war now for 70-plus days, and they've been fighting this war for those beliefs, the beliefs that we believe in here in the West, the collective us, this space. We've watched from the sidelines, and the only 
weapons available to us are our voices, our words, even our cell phones and our keyboards. In a world where the battle space is no longer just troops and bullets and tanks, in a world where the court of public opinion counts now more than ever, we all play a role. We can vote with our fingers, our feet, our voices, our emails, our wallets. We can contact our democratically elected representatives the world over. I really want to thank everyone for being here. Thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people have heard our message. Um, you know, and Marie Aid is all we have right now. Like, is all I have. I, I, you know, we're putting 12, 20 hours a day. Um, if you can retweet, if you can, you know, send them an email to your HR department at your medium company, your small company, your big company, let them know we exist. We, we're, we're dealing with the Ministry of Defense. Uh, we have individuals, amazing, super competent officers in this room, Colonel Lake, um, you know, who, who is on the ground, skin in the game. We have relationships with actual units on the front line and under the auspices of the Ministry of Defense of the government of Ukraine. We're providing them with things that will do the things that need to be done uh, without getting into details, um, drones, thermals, NVGs. Um, we're witnessing a genocide we're, we're seeing little baby girls murdered, raped, uh, and Russia can get away with it, thinks they can get away with it because no one's going to stop them. So the little things that we can do from the sidelines, the little things we can do to help Ukraine help itself, I think it's, a, it's the least we can do as a collective. So I want to thank everyone for being here and contributing, and whether it's your time, whether it's lawyers calling up saying, what can we do, PR people. Uh, Betsy Mullen, a great uh, resource we have from the States. She's been a, a miracle worker. Um, uh, thank you to everyone for being here. And, and, and again, thanks thanks to the panel. You bring a lot of expertise that calms people. And, and I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm going to tell you, um, when, when, this, uh, when this first started, perhaps because of my own professional or personal experiences, I, I might have been jaded. I was confused sometimes and almost annoyed and dismayed even when people would speak or write in and say by the thousands mind you this space in particular made them feel comforted it made them feel comforted in the hope of peace and the hope of the information they're getting is good and valid and the battle would be won uh where good would surpass evil in very hyperbolic sense and i thought it was honestly emotional even silly uh, and i was wrong I slowly came to realize that these feelings, these beliefs were genuine. This was a product of years of feeling impotent and failing to square one's belief with their conscience uh, and, and, and being able to provide a follow through with deeds and acts. Uh, and now is the time to push through, push through and onto the objective. As a collective, we can affect this change that we seek if we just believe in ourselves and the, effic the efficacy of our collective voices. And today isn't about how we feel about this or that president or about these rights, or Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or the Supreme Court of this country. Um, right now our house is on fire. Let's not ask if we uh, turn the stove off. We're at a historic crossroads. It's a watershed in modern history. And uh, do we sit back and watch Mr. Putin destroy peace and security across the world? Or do we make our own stand, however small it may be? And a wise man once said, it requires ordinary people to do an extraordinary thing. You can't achieve those extraordinary things without a whole lot of ordinary people. Well, here we are today, so let's do it. So on that note, I'm going to pass it off to Drew. Uh, I want to thank again everyone, and uh, if you could direct your attention to reaid.org when you can, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for the excellent panel uh, from 
on behalf of the entire Walter Report, all the moderators who helped make this happen and fielded questions and edited and cut and pasted, uh, all that good stuff. Thanks again to uh, everyone. Over to you, Drew. Thanks, Yehuda. And uh, thanks again to, you know, our, our wonderful panel of speakers. Um, frankly, this space wouldn't be possible without each and every one of you. Um, and we really appreciate it. So if, if the audience listening could go ahead and follow the speakers, um, I'm sure they'd appreciate it. You just click on their, uh, on their photo, click through to their profile and click follow. Um, not that hard, frankly. Um, at the same time, please go ahead and tweet out the space. It's the blue button at the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. Um, and it helps tell Twitter's algorithm that we have something special here. Um, you know, it's not every day that you uh, get someone like Colonel Venman um, to give over an hour of his time um, to, uh, to us on the, uh, on the internet. And as uh, Yehuda was saying, please check out Maria Aid. That's M-R-I-Y-A-A-I-D dot O-R-G for more information about um, the work that we're doing to get aid directly to the front lines um, now not six months from now. With that, we're going to try to cycle through some more speakers. Um, I'm sure there's going to be tons of follow-up questions um, regarding some of the things that Alex said. That's perfectly okay. Um, and with that, I want to... Um, Sky Lee, are you there? I am here. How are you doing? Thanks. I'm good. Thanks, Drew. My name is Skyly Heinen, and I was um, in the U.S. Army from 2000 to 2004. I was in the Apache attack unit and um, involved in entering Iraq um, in 2003. We flew in front of them. Um, so that's my background, and I have been fighting the good fight um, on Twitter and advocating for veterans and everything I can to keep our democracy straight. Um, mostly, I just want to say that uh, Colonel Vindman really brought it together as far as the mentality on the field, um, Russia and Ukraine, and what weaponry is needed to actually make some damage in this in this war and, and get a tactical gain. Um, the Hellfire missiles are so important, you guys. Um, our Apaches uh, hold two Hellfire missiles and, and they go out and they just rock it. They, they do, and I wish with all my heart that we could give them Apaches, but that'll never happen. Um, so I wanted to touch on that, and I wanted to touch on, I fight a lot with the uh, disinformation um, online, and I am part of Demcast, and I run a group of over 400 people, um, and I am constantly, uh, it's, it's in the moment, I am sending them everything that is going down on both sides, and uh I have a list of wonderful resources so people know they can trust, so I can share in the future. Um, as Alex said, this is this is a social media war, and it couldn't be said better. Um, and I have to say that I feel very confident that we're winning that war. And for the first time in 20 years, Russia is 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 not able to penetrate our fight against his disinformation. So that's super, super important. Um, I wanted to say 
much respect to Melanie Lake and, and Maria Aid. I am so excited to to have been connected with this organization and I look forward to working with you guys and anything that I can do. Um, my platform is here for you. I am here for Ukraine. Um, I, I, if I wasn't disabled, I would, I would be over there fighting right beside them. Um, so I just wanted to let that out and anyone have any questions for me? I'm always here. Thank you much. Thank you so much for that, Skyly. Really appreciate it. And the, the kind words for Maria Aid. Um, you know, we we're just getting started, uh, but it's been some of the most impactful work of, of my life. Um, I know uh, Colonel Lake feels the same way. I know she's done much more um, impressive things than I have, frankly. Um, but, you know, the, the thing to know about Maria Aedis is that we're all entirely volunteers. Exactly. Uh, no one's getting paid to do this. Um, and 100% of um, your donations go to the front lines. Exactly. So, Exactly. And, and, you know, I had to really get in this and once I throw myself into something, I'm in it. Um, so I'm super excited to be refocusing my attention from um, leading off my disinformation rooms and, and moving over towards the front line. Thanks, Kylie. I want to um, take a second to uh, talk with Colonel Lake for a couple of seconds here. I'm sure she's about to try to skedaddle. Um, she has a young one. Um, <laughs> Busted. <laughs> roped her back in, everyone. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to get your take on, on what um, Colonel Vindman's thoughts were earlier to your questions. Yeah. Um, I came out of listening to him really pumped up, um, really feeling, you know, reinforced in in my beliefs, especially with that last question that uh, that John asked there and his definitive response. I mean, I have intuitively believed since the onset of this that that Ukraine was going to win. Um, but some days it's so hard to imagine what winning looks like. And that's why I keep asking people, you know, like, how do you see this ending? And to hear it, you know, to hear those answers from someone who has as much experience in that domain uh, and, and with both Ukraine and Russia is, um, it's really impactful to hear his words uh, and really encouraging to hear his absolute confidence in what the outcome of this is going to be. Absolutely. I, I think uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Ukraine's going to win. It's just a matter of the timeline. Yeah. And I, and, and that's why, you know, I always come back to like the idea that in that first week of the world of, of the war, um, you know, a post post 24 uh, February, I think so many people were just happy every day to wake up and see Ukraine was still standing. But we have we have really passed that point, you know, and we are looking to decisive victory. And I just hope that, you know, there are smart, intelligent, driven people out there who are doing that math on what does that outcome look like? And working backwards, what support do we need to provide to get? Oops, uh, so, sorry for that. Please continue, Colonel Mullen Lake. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, John. I see John's got his hand up there. Yeah, I just wanted to provide a, a second amazing opinion of that. I mean, I deal in this space of kind of news commentary, so they dig out 
all these experts that just because they served in the military and, and thank you for their service. But I mean, as bold as like, you know, drawing these giant lines of, okay, this will all be Russian territory. There's nothing the Ukrainians can do about that today. And I saw something like that. So to have somebody with that type of real knowledge and information, history and all that uh, speak so definitively was incredibly motivating and, and really confirmation bias for myself but there's almost it isn't disinformation, but I watch a lot of news and try to, you know, I come to the Walters report, of course, to get the, the most timely and accurate information and analysis. But I try to keep up with what's being said, in, at least in the United States and in all well, BBC. And some of these people are just not, they're just pontificating. They, they don't have the depth of analysis or even knowledge of the Ukrainian situation on the ground. I worried, you know, in the beginning when, when, like, I did feel so strongly they were going to win um, and, you know, talked about all of the, all of the factors behind that. I, I worried for a little while, you know, that I was on the border of, uh, of almost propaganda, you know, I just truly believed so strongly. Um, but more and more, I just think it's reinforced. Like there are so many tangible things that back up the idea that they are going to win and all of the reasons behind that. And just, you know, that still that resolve and that whole of society mobilization, I think are some of the strongest factors that remain and have remained since day one. Absolutely. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that the Ukrainians are doing everyone a huge service. Um, they're legitimately on the front lines of democracy and they're risking their lives, their country, um, to defend that. And, you know, we, we're not putting ourselves in danger, frankly. And, you know, I, I'm just so grateful for, for everything that they're doing. You know, one thing that Benman said earlier was that, you know, the longer this war drags on, um, he said something to the effect of it's going to cause even greater issues for NATO, right? It's, it yeah. just, it, it causes a more opportunity for it to escalate. Right. And so it feels like now is not the time to hedge our bets and, uh, you know, <laughs> frankly, yeah. half ass how we support them. And, and we need to, you know, we need to make sure that we don't have that, like some sort of ingrained mindset that that decisive victory is impossible. You know, we've we've been through 20 years of protracted conflicts where this idea of how does this war end is very, very difficult to imagine. And like, what does victory look like? But I think, you know, this is a case where um, where there are clear ideas, there is a potential path and, and we need to strive for that. We have to be courageous. We have to not just look at trying to keep them in the game. We have to, you know, fully commit because like you said, it's the front line of democracy for all of us. And, you know, we can't afford to live in a world where the path to victory is the sort of path that Russia has taken, this barbaric um, approach like that, that cannot stand. Thank you. And uh, very well said, and, and I do apologize. I actually do have to run now, but an immense pleasure to be here this evening. Thank you so much for this and great job on hosting that panel and, and bringing in such a valuable speaker. Thank you to everyone in the space. Good night. Thank you, man, for coming. Have a good night. Have a good, good night. night. And that said, we welcome again, welcome back Peter Darren who was uh, leading Center for European Policy Analysis, SIPA, and he had a couple of questions. 
and uh, he has also some unique insights to share with us. To you, Peter. Thank you, Walter. I just wanted to maybe come in and uh, like carpet bomb the battle space after uh, Colonel Lake and uh, Colonel Spencer had already prepared the field for me. Uh, I, I completely agree. I thought it was excellent uh, to have Colonel Vindman here, uh, to have his insights. Uh, there were a couple points that he raised that I thought were especially important uh, for the discussion, and they amplified uh, the conversations that, that's, that are happening right now in, in, on the Walter Report and in this space. Perhaps most significantly was this issue of winning. Uh, Colonel Lake mentioned it. She talked about what does the end game look like for Ukraine, Colonel, if I could paraphrase you there. Uh, she, she talked about how do we, you know, prepare for what the final, you know, status, you know, the situation after the conflict ends looks like. Uh, and uh, Colonel Vindman, he, he was very clear. He, he mentioned winning several times. And it strikes me that right now, uh, Europe, in the last 24 hours, the EU has come out and uh, Ursula von der Leyen, she has said, we want Ukraine to win. Uh, that is where the Europeans are right now. Right now, the United States, we're not quite there yet. Uh, we've seen Secretary Austin say, our goal is that Russia must be weakened. Okay, there's a difference there. And when we have these conversations and we have these experts uh, like Colonel Vindman, who has you know, fought those policy trench wars inside the NSC, who understands how policy in the U.S. really gets made, uh, it's just a tremendous reflection on this space, on the quality of contributors. And uh, I would encourage all of us uh, to start focusing on that question of winning, to ask ourselves, what does winning look like? What does it look like at the end of the day when uh, we can say, this is what we're all fighting for as a coalition, as the United West? And I want Ukraine to win. I certainly want Ukraine to be part of NATO and obviously to take back its territory. But uh, I would definitely encourage uh, this space and, and thank you, uh, Colonel Lake, for all that you have done in serving your country. And uh, thank, thank you to the moderators who day in and day out uh, fell gigantic Russian trolls with ease and do it with style. Uh, I love listening to this space just to watch the info war battles take place in real time. So thank you guys. So actually I have a uh, follow-up question from uh, one of our Ukrainian listeners. Hello? It's uh, more of a hypothetical question, um, but also it might become a very pertinent question in the nearest future. So let's assume uh, Ukrainians uh, succeed in pushing Russians back into Russia and reclaim our territories, Ukrainian territories. And apparently the Russians will continue to to shell Ukrainian cities from Russian territory and fire missiles and ballistic missiles into Ukraine, um, continuing to perpetrate essentially harm and damage, not just to Ukrainian infrastructure, but killing Ukrainian civilians. So considering that Ukraine at this point doesn't have such capabilities to essentially stop all of these attacks and uh, rocket barrage coming from Russia, cruise missiles and ballistic missiles. So what will be ne the next step? It's a bit far-fetched question, but it's coming from one of the Ukrainian listeners. Is this uh, justifiable to to continue firing or attacking Russian military infrastructure in the, in such case? Or what what will be the next step after essentially pushing, pushing Russians back into Russia if they continue the aggression from Russian territory? Was there a 
I, I mean, obviously, Colonel Spencer or Major Guru might have some thoughts on that. That's called playing hot potato, Peter. <laughs> Everyone is. Uh... <laughs> I've been in Washington for twenty years. I know how to play that game pretty well. <laughs> no worries. Um, uh, it's it looks a Philly like Major special. Spencer had to leave. Um, Major Guru. Jason Zuru, if you're with us, yeah, you, you can, uh, if you want to, you can take that question, of course. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, hi, it's it's Major Jeru. Unfortunately, I can't answer it. I just, uh, I'm not, that's not my, my experience, unfortunately. That's not my, uh, that's not my strength in being able to answer a question like that. I'm sorry. No worries. We appreciate uh, people who acknowledge their, uh, <laughs> what they don't know. It's yeah, it's a, obviously it's an open-ended question and a, a bit provocative, of course, but it's something to keep in mind. It it might be a plausible scenario, considering the prospects of Russians and Russian invaders currently, which are diminishing, and the possibility of them being pushed back into Russia, and then what happens next if they continue to fire missiles and ballistic missiles into Ukraine. So let's uh, leave it at this. Back to you, Drew. Yeah, and I just, uh, for anyone wanting to ask a question or come up to speak and a comment, please feel free to request the microphone. You hit the microphone at the bottom left-hand corner of your screen, and we will do our best to get you up here. Um, at the same time, once you are up, raise your hand. You hit the uh, heart-shaped icon, um, and then hit the raise hand button, and we will do our best to get through to you. Um, and in the meantime, Wendy, welcome. Uh, thanks, Drew. Thanks, Walter. I, I'll be quick because um, I'll make a quick comment because there's far more distinguished speakers on here um, to speak about this than than I am. But, um, uh, yeah, uh, 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 um, the question about weaponry is, is an important one um, because I, I think there is a fundamental inequity which exists at the moment in the ide ideological approach that, um, that uh, Ukraine's allies have. We, we all want Ukraine to win um, and, and we all want them to be free. But um, at the moment, uh, the current approach has focused uh, significantly on providing um, a lot of Javelin missiles to brave Ukrainian servicemen and women who are pu putting their human bodies in the way, or, you know, 800 meters away from mechanized Russian units. And um, I, I think that if there's, you know, if there's ever a time to arm Ukraine properly and save as many Ukraine lives um, as possible, th that time is now. Um, so, yeah, you know, with the, 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 the debates within Europe, which are frankly totally irrelevant about sending armor to Ukraine because the war has passed those debates by, you know, the war has moved on. Um, uh, you know, the, the, but the, the, the aspects I think of, of, of people, certain people thinking that, um, oh, it's going to be okay if we just, just arm Ukraine with loads of javelin missiles. I don't think that is okay. I think that they need, um, uh, instead of this strategy, they need extensive weaponry to um, to to combat Russian aggression in in, in you know in in their country. Um, and this this is something that has to be acknowledged at a political level. Um, so yeah, thanks thanks for the space. Thanks for giving me the time to speak.
I'll uh, drop down. Thanks. Thanks, Wendy. Um, Piraf? Hi, yeah, thank you. Um, so just uh, responding to a comment uh, that Peter made earlier and something that I've heard um, just over the last week or so on uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's statement on uh, wanting to weaken Russia. Um, personally, I interpreted that as um, more of a statement on, or sorry, a reaction to uh, the narrative coming from Russia on that the U.S. wanted to destroy Russia. Um, while I think definitely there should have been a statement of, you know, we want Ukraine to win, um, it might have been redundant or already stated. I think I do believe that that was an important thing to say that he missed on. But just my interpretation was more of a response to um, the rhetoric coming from Russia. I think that's an excellent point. And the reason I was raising it is because we are in a gigantic coalition. Uh, I think you are right to raise it. And I, I strongly believe that we agree. Uh, you know, policy is tough. Coalitions and alliances are extremely tough. And when you have different countries and individuals, millions of people from different political perspectives all coming together, rallying towards a, a shared objective, it is critical that you are able as a leader uh, to clearly state what it is our objective is, what it is we are fighting for. And I am very glad that the Europeans have taken that bold step. Can you believe that? I'm an American conservative, and I'm saying I'm glad the Europeans have taken that bold step of saying we want Ukraine to win. I would like to see the United States take that step and join the EU so that as a united Western civilization, we can all state very clearly we want Ukraine to win, and then we can get to work on what winning looks like. And that's why I put that out there. I think Ukraine must become part of our alliance as a, as a definition of winning. Moldova, Georgia must become part of our alliance as a definition of winning. Uh, and we can talk about what those other definitions are. But I think if we can agree in a transatlantic, uh, community, as a transatlantic community what winning looks like, and also we agree Ukraine must win, then uh, we're in a better position to defeat Russia. And so you're right to raise that point, And that's why I was trying to put that out there. Perfectly said. Thank you. And Ukraine definitely has, uh, say, gotten the stripes by now. Nobody can ever say that they are not prepared to join NATO. NATO is prepared to join Ukraine, right? <laughs> Thank you, Drew, for saying it. That's exactly right. Uh, Leonard, please go ahead. Oh, hello. Um, I have a question for uh, for uh, Major, uh, or sorry, Colonel Jason Giroux. But uh, firstly, I would just like to say uh, how appreciative I am of this this excellent uh, uh, space, and specifically the um, the gathering today, and the insights of the speakers uh, so far are just incredible. So, um, great commendations to the entire the entire panel for bringing that off. And now with, with respect to my question um, um, for uh, Colonel Giroux, uh, you, you might've uh, noted from, uh, I'm, I have a bit of a serious ongoing concern with regard to the, um, the Azov um, stall plant and what's going on in Mariupol. And uh, I know that, uh, that, sir, you have some specific expertise in terms of that, uh, that very type of combat. So I was just wondering if, uh, 
and also it's it's great to see you back here um and i just say that the the more frequently we can um have the benefit of your expertise here i mean the better off uh, for everybody <clears throat> who visit <clears throat> excuse me who visits this site but uh my specific question was um i i believe that uh, one of the previous commentators i think uh uh, Canadian chap, uh, Battle Moose, I think, had referred to some specific tunnel engagement combat training that uh, the Canadian forces conducted. And uh, I, I believe he specifically mentioned Camp Petawawa, uh, which I think is, uh, that's Vandu territory, if I'm, if I'm correct. And I'm just wondering if you have any specific insight in terms of... Uh, without without giving any hints or any giving away anything to the to the invaders here but specifically with reference uh, to that and to any uh, uh, insights that you might have gained from from uh, dealing with the specific training um, at that facility and additionally um, I, I know you're an historian so um, I, I believe that the U.S. 1st Marine Division had some very specific um, combat um, extensive issues that, that arose in the Battle of Iwo Jima. And uh, I'm just wondering if you, I'm sure you've studied that in some detail, but I'm just wondering if you have anything that uh, that might be distilled that would uh, shed some light on this. And again, thank you for your insights, sir. And I'll stand yeah. down. Yeah, Leonard, uh, first of all, I have to thank you for the promotion to Colonel. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm actually just a major. And uh, promoting me up two ranks from, from major to lieutenant to Colonel to Colonel, I am going to go to work tomorrow and uh, ask uh, my boss, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Dan Shaver, if I can, uh, if I can uh, keep with that promotion. But some tell him he's going to say no. Uh, so thank you very much for that. Um, yeah, Avzestal plant and subterranean. Uh, fighting, and you actually asked a question about uh, Canadian Forces Base Petawawa. That's actually RCR territory. That's actually my regiment who's actually up in Petawawa. There are no uh, subterranean training facilities there at all. Uh, you may, it might be when I was talking about when I uh, did some urban operations training in subterranean context with the 48th Highlanders of Canada out of Toronto. Uh, from the 4th to the 6th of March, in which, uh, and I talked about this the other night actually too, uh, in which um, the 40th Highlanders actually were able to uh, acquire the use of uh, an abandoned subway system uh, within uh, Toronto from the Toronto Transit Commission. Apparently it's used for Hollywood uh, film shoots and for um, police training, etc. So uh, we were able to use it. The 40th Highlanders actually had uh, soldiers going on force on force. So there was an enemy force against uh, a, 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 a group of uh, friendly soldiers, uh, good guys. They were armed with uh, simunition, which is um, which is paintball ammunition. And uh, they were actually uh, attacking and defending each other within Toronto subways. Uh, my involvement in that was taking the officers and the senior NCOs and uh, coming up with the planning tactics and sustainment on how to attack and defend that particular part of Toronto, including that subterranean system there. And so I think that's that's maybe where you may have got confused from my 
from my talking there a few nights back. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, so I'm not really divulging any secrets about uh, pedal wall or anything as such, uh, because it was actually that exercise in Toronto that I was uh, involved in. And uh, it was very eye-opening because, as I said, in the Canadian Armed Forces, we don't have any subterranean operations doctrine. So I actually had to read American doctrine to make sure that I was educated enough and uh, good enough to speak and teach that particular challenge to uh, the 40th Highlanders. Did that answer your question, Leonard? Uh, yes, it certainly did. Uh, thank you very much, sir. Yeah, and you mentioned Ima. Um, I, I am very uh, partial. I have a personal interest um, in uh, United States Marine Corps history. My maternal grandfather was a, U a U.S. Marine. He was born and raised in the United States, became, became a Canadian citizen after the war. And uh, my grandfather, uh, Sergeant Jack Gilchrist, was, uh, he saw combat against the Japanese at Kwajalein, Guam, and Okinawa uh, during the Second World War. And so I've always had a great interest. In fact, it was my, uh, both my grandfathers who served in the Second World War, my, my paternal grandfather being in the Canadian Navy, and my maternal grandfather as a U.S. Marine inspired me to join the service. And... Uh, and uh, so uh, you mentioned Iwo Jima. Yes, the Japanese had actually dug uh, kilometers and kilometers of tunnels uh, underneath the island. Uh, the the, all, the island's volcanic ash made it very easy to dig these tunnels. And so there was um, uh, tens of thousands of Japanese actually inhabited the island, and they spent months and months digging out the subterranean tunnels because they knew the Americans actually had the uh, the advantage the Americans had control over the seas. They knew that the Americans would bombard them for weeks upon end with uh, naval fire and air fire, and so they they dug into the into the sands, the volcanic ash of of, of Iwo Jima, to protect themselves, so that when the Americans landed uh, with the uh, uh, the third, fourth, and fifth Marine divisions. And you have to remember these divisions are, you know, anywhere from from on average fifteen thousand Marines, and they're landing three divisions on on a very small island. Uh, the Japanese were ready, and as soon as the bombardment ended, the Japanese were were ready and came out of. And that's the dangers of fighting an enemy in subterranean. It doesn't matter if it's Iwo Jima in nineteen in February and March of nineteen forty five, or or Azovstal plant now. Um, uh, I'll bring it forward to say that if the Russians dare go into those tunnels, uh, they're going to find a very hard fight on their hands, providing that the Ukrainians have the supplies and uh, and the ammunition. The the earlier Walter report, uh, the one before that 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 was going on before we started at seven o'clock. There, uh, Craig was actually talking about uh, do they have? There was the question of do they have the supplies the bullets in the water. And there was a, a conversation about, well, they actually have a water purifying machine and, and all that stuff, which is great. Uh, my eyebrows were raised. I was like, Oh, if they have a water purifying machine, that's outstanding and a way to get water in the system. But the concern is the, the remainder of the supplies, whether they have the ammunition and the food to be able to feed everybody and, and fend off the Russians. And I, I, I continue to get questions on how long is Azovstal going to last for? How long are they going to be able to fight? How long are they going to be able to defend? Unless I understand how many supplies they have, how many personnel they have, and unless I understand the Russian plan, I can't answer that question. This this battle could go on for another few days, could go on for another few weeks. Uh, so I think, Leonard, I think that finally answers all the questions. Uh, yes, it certainly does, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, so I believe uh, Drew has a uh, connection problems. Uh, we'll get him back pretty much soon. 
Drew, are you with us? All right. Actually, so dropped off. Yep, I'll, I'll take care of that. No worries. And we have Alexa, Alexa O'Brien, who is an investigative analyst, and uh, actually, she was uh, focused and is focused on intelligence. And Alexa, to you. Thanks. I had a I had a question. It's it's if you might if, it's a political consideration with regards to uh, a previous speaker who was talking about a united Europe. Um, and the question that I have is federalism presents a particular problem. If you read the Federalist Papers, for example, for the U.S. Constitution, which covers a large landmass, there's the discussion of the problems of, you know, um, federalism generally, politically, it presents a particular problem. Um, another example would be, for example, the Medici Italy, you know, where you had a lot of warring um, provinces uh, because there wasn't really a sort of centralizing power. So with regards to the EU um, specifically and Ukraine, I'm wondering, um, it seems to me that as the, after the Cold War, we thought in the West that, you know, former Soviet bloc countries were going to become like us. And what we've seen in the last decade, it seems, is this rising Euroscepticism. So I'm wondering if someone could speak to the political question or challenges of a ever expanding U- European Union. And it's a genuine question. Peter, you want to take this yeah. first or shall I jump? I was going to ask to take it. So <laughs> thank you, Axel. Uh, hot dang. What a great question. Um, here's here's what I would say. In our minds, let's go back to the revolution of dignity and the Euromaidan. Uh, what did we see there? We saw Ukrainians who believed in us perhaps more than we believe in ourselves sometimes. Uh, We saw Ukrainians rejecting the notion that might makes right. We saw Ukrainians saying, we are fighting for the right to decide the future of our country, and we want that country to go west, not east into Putin's kleptocratic war criminal uh, oligopoly or something. Um, That was powerful to see Ukrainians believing in us more than we believe in ourselves. And I think, if anything, we can learn from Ukrainians in what they have done. And I hope that if there's any good to come from the horrific violence that Ukrainians have suffered over uh, these many years, uh, it is that the West rekindles its heroism, rekindles its memory of of who we are and what we stand for. Uh, And that's why I said uh, a definition of victory must include Ukraine as part of NATO, Georgia and Moldova as part of NATO, because we will benefit from having them as part of our alliance and our civilization. And I think oftentimes our our political disputes compared to what the Ukrainians are facing on a day-to-day basis pale in comparison. And that's why I wanted to put out that bold marker. And I continue to encourage the United States and Europe to work towards that goal of winning instead of just muddling through, which is what we've been good at doing for too many years. All righty. Um, yeah, I, I'm not going to go further into European devolved and federalist public politics for the moment. But Ryan, you had your hand up as well. I wanted to follow up on that. And I'm really glad uh, Alexa asked the question and Peter followed it up. And I would offer a counterpoint of uh, cautioning that we not get too far out over our skis here in assuming that Ukraine needs needs to or either will want to join NATO at the end of these hostilities. Um, Ukraine has demonstrated that they are a independent country and can make their own choices. And it's a bit presumptuous of us as Western countries, whether we're their allies and supporters or not, to expect that they will join our military alliance. 
Um, I, I wonder if Ukrainians' participation in NATO might not be a precondition of peace here. And again, we don't know what peace looks like, and I don't want to get too far out over the skis on that. But uh, this could very well end up in some kind of demilitarized zone that resembles North Korea. It could end up in regime change in Russia. That would negate all that. But I think regardless of how hostilities uh, cool down, there's going to be a heavy, heavily militarized border between Ukraine and Russia for the foreseeable future. And I don't know that uh, Ukraine is going to feel like they need NATO necessarily or NATO membership to affect that. Uh, Finland is a prime example of, of being on the border with, with a post-Soviet Russia and not needing to be a NATO state. Yeah, okay, it's a good point. Um, Finland is joining NATO right now, and the Ukrainians fought a revolution to change their constitution to state very clearly, we want to be part of NATO, and they put that in their constitution. And any decision about grand geopolitical alliances will ultimately have to be approved by Ukrainian voters. Uh, Zelensky can sit down at a table with Putin tomorrow and they can hammer something out. But unless the Ukrainian people agree to that agree, uh, that decision and that piece of paper, then that piece of paper is worth nothing. So you're absolutely right. The future of Ukraine is in the hands of Ukrainians. Uh, that's why they fought that original revolution in, in the first place. Uh, and what I say is, they believe in us more than we believe in ourselves. We should take stock of that and start believing in ourselves more and remembering what it is we are as a civilization and what it is we can accomplish. And I think we will benefit by having the Ukrainians in our civilization versus anyone else's. I totally agree. Um, it's, it's hard to maintain coalitions and democracies, especially in the face of ever-growing misinformation campaigns from authoritarian regimes. And I think um, active measures have been discussed ad nauseum in this space. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think there's been an, an active misinformation campaign throughout the West with things like Brexit to tear down the European Union and NATO core coalitions uh, as more of a, a subtext in that. But I, I do agree with you. I just don't know I'm hesitant to make any forecasts or assumptions because we 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 don't know the unknown and we really don't know what uh, the end of hostilities is going to look like here. And I hope to God it doesn't look like North Korea. Right. Well, sorry for that. Um, Ryan, thank you for your question. And uh, we have Konstantin Kalinowski here who just joined us. Uh, Konstantin, have a interesting background he served in 2014 2015 and uh, can you give us some insights about about those years about the first opening stages of russian invasion and where you were at that point and uh, how you help the front line right now and how you help ukrainian defenders right now to you constantin and then we'll go to skyly uh, yes, hello everyone. It's a pleasure to be here and listening to such wonderful and experienced people. Uh, yeah, my name is Konstantin. I've served in, uh, I was drafted uh, into the military without any prior experience uh, into the war in 2014, in August 2014. And uh, I served in, uh, at, the, at, the, at the three different branches. I served at the uh, Air Force, then I, I was moved to the, to the infantry, 
and then uh, ground forces. Then I was moved to artillery. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and right now all my friends are serving there. Uh, and I live in America for past three years. Uh, so all my uh, fellow veterans who I served with uh, back then are serving right now at the front lines, and I'm trying to support them from here as much as I can. Um, so that's my background. And uh, well, back then, when 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 the draft only started, uh, we only had like you would join the military, and uh, you would get a list essentially saying you you drafted, you are to uh, come, uh, you have one day to arrive with 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 those with these things. Uh, then you would have like a couple of uh, maybe a couple of days of training uh, and depending on